Hi everyone. Today's episode deals with the topic of mental health. We know this is a really challenging time, so we have provided some mental health resources in the show notes. We appreciate that it's not easy to ask for help, but please know that there are a lot of support services available if you are struggling right now. We hope you enjoy today's show. This is After Immunity, a UMFM limited series that aims to explore the questions surrounding what our individual and collective worlds will look like after we've gained immunity to COVID-19. Join me, Ian T.D. Thompson, as we explore five topics to understand the post-COVID-19 world. On today's episode, we are looking at mental health after immunity. Join us as we talk with Dr. Mary Bartram, Director of Mental Health and Substance Use at the Mental Health Commission of Canada, and Lindsay Naden and Jonah Frolic, clinical psychologists in training working in Manitoba and Quebec, respectively. To say that this pandemic has been taxing is to state the obvious. Over the past year, we have been kept apart from or have lost loved ones, career paths have changed or come to an end, and financial and workplace uncertainty has only intensified. Furthermore, pandemic restrictions have required us to adjust and eliminate many of our creature comforts and elements of our past normal. Change can be a difficult thing to manage, and such external events and pressures have consequently impacted our mental health in varying ways. We've all experienced this pandemic differently. However, in looking at the statistics, things have certainly not been ideal. According to KPMG, 54% of Canadians say that their mental health has suffered because of the pandemic, while 42% believe that the pandemic will have a lasting impact on their mental health. Canadians have reported greater anxiety, stress, depression, and feelings of loneliness over the past year. There's also been increased substance use and abuse of those substances to cope with the pandemic, leading to more substance-related hospital care. Lastly, many Canadians have felt so helpless that they have considered taking their own lives. Nearly 1 in 10 Canadians have seriously considered suicide in the past year. Over the past year, services and programs have responded to the pandemic and its effects on mental health. For instance, the federal government introduced the virtual mental health care portal Wellness Together Canada, which provides free resources to Canadians to manage their mental health and substance use concerns. Furthermore, in many sectors, individual and group therapy sessions as well as training programs have moved from in-person to online to address pressing psychological and mental health challenges. However, the issues we are faced with are immense, and much of our future remains uncertain. What society will we see come out of this pandemic? What will be the short-term and long-term mental health consequences created by the pandemic? How will we deal with issues of addiction, loneliness, and suicide that have been exacerbated? How will we bounce back? To begin this conversation is Dr. Mary Bartram, Director of Mental Health and Substance Use at the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Dr. Bartram has led mental health and substance use policy development and implementation with federal and territorial governments, indigenous organizations, and NGOs. She completed her PhD in public policy at Carleton University, where she now teaches courses in public policy and administration. Additionally, her research has focused on a wide range of issues such as equity and access to psychotherapy, harm reduction in post-secondary settings, and recovering the mental health and substance use sectors. Dr. Bartram, thank you so much for joining us. Pleased to be here, Ian. 
I guess before we begin talking about the post-COVID-19 world, can you provide the listeners with just a general outline of the goals of the commission and what sort of services and supports it provides? Absolutely. So the Mental Health Commission of Canada has been around since 2007, and we really focus on supporting the mental health of Canadians by doing things like developing tools and programs, but also sharing tools and programs that are developed by some of the partners that we work closely with across the country. Mm -hmm. I think that's a helpful place just to kind of say, where's the commission in the mental health space, I guess. Mm -hmm. So obviously mental health isn't just a a new phenomenon that we're going through the pandemic. There there were issues and challenges that the commission and advocates were kind of aware of in the space before the pandemic. So I was wondering if you might be able to kind of paint a picture a little bit about that pre-pandemic situation. What were some of the key areas that the commission was aiming to address in terms of mental health advocacy and support pre-pandemic? Absolutely. So even before the pandemic, mental health was a big concern. One of the big issues that faced the health and well-being of the population. So we knew that one in five people have a mental health problem or illness in any given year. And over a lifetime, half of us will experience some sort of mental health problem or illness. You know, the cost to the economy is also really big, over $50 billion a year you know, it's a pretty big deal in terms of a policy priority for for Canadians. And some of the areas that the Commission was working on and continues to work on through the pandemic were improving access to mental health services and not just access, but the quality of services that people have access to. Suicide prevention is a big focus for the Mental Health Commission. Stigma, a huge, I'm sure your listeners will relate to that as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. And then also the interface, the integration, the connection between mental health and substance use is a big interest of the Mental Health Commission. And we work closely with our sister organization, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction, to, to really try to advance that. Mm -hmm. So it really sounds like there are a number of aspects in mental health that were still quite prominent. And and again, it's interesting to hear some of those frames a little bit that, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, predominantly mental health is about the individual's well-being, but it also has a lot of ramifications across society as a whole. So obviously, this series as a whole, it's focusing on that post COVID-19 world. And in terms of mental health, it's been one of those main topics of discussion, the role that the pandemic has played in exacerbating mental health issues. People have felt lonelier. People have been turning to problematic coping mechanisms, excessive alcohol use. While we may become kind of immune to the virus, we won't forget this period and the difficulties and the challenges we've all individually and collectively faced. In your view, what sort of long-term mental health effects do you anticipate will manifest with Canadians because of this period? Absolutely. So one of the first things we did almost a year ago now when the first kind of lockdown was announced in mid-March was to really take stock of what we know from the research on the impacts of previous pandemics, Mm -hmm. natural disasters, what could we be in for? And what we found at that time was that the mental health impacts of something sort of similar to this COVID-19 pandemic are generally delayed. So there's this kind of delay that happens Mm -hmm. that people kind of pull together at first and kind of cope okay at first, but then maybe later is when the mental health impacts really start to take root. 
long lasting, that this can kind of keep going for a while, that people don't necessarily bounce back right away. And complex, that there's lots of complexities, you know, when you add in grief, job loss, just the length of something like this. So on the other hand, we have like this incredible capacity for resilience and it's unclear from where we sit now um, and we can see some of the increases in what people are saying that they're not feeling well that they're not sleeping well that they're having some of these symptoms how much of this will resolve naturally for folks once they get on the other side of being vaccinated for example how much relief will that bring well we don't know yet what that might do for people and we don't want to lose sight of that as a possibility as well. So we haven't seen anything quite like this pandemic in a long, long time, really ever in, in the current society that we live in. So mm-hmm. we can learn a little bit from what's happened before, but we're still learning week by week what this is actually going to be like. So it's hard to predict the future. Yeah, no, that's true. And that's why, you know, we're having these discussions and seeing what can we say and what can't we say about this and what are we still kind of rather uncertain about. Now, you mentioned a few aspects there, but I really just want to dig a little bit deeper into some of the potential symptoms that mm-hmm. people might be undergoing in this period and, and how they might manifest. You mentioned people having disruptive sleep. Uh, what might be some of the other ways in which mental health, how they might be amplified in the long run, things like anxiety, uh, substance misuse, the things along that nature? Well, again, it's hard to know what's going to stick and what won't. Um, Certainly what we're seeing now is elevated rates of symptoms of depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts as Mm -hmm. well. And what that really breaks down to is that there are more people saying that they don't feel cheerful, that they aren't sleeping well, that they are worried about the future. So it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person has a clinical depression or is clinically diagnosed as having an anxiety disorder, mm-hmm. but people are reporting more of those kinds of symptoms at a more severe level than before the pandemic in ways that are quite significant across the board. When you add you know, grief and loss into the mix, I think, and a lot of the disruptions that people have been experiencing, I think there's potential for trauma to be something that lingers for folks. And then again, we're seeing, as you mentioned, people who use alcohol or who use cannabis using more, sometimes at levels that are considered problematic or risky, will that stop? Once people start to feel a bit of relief from the direct stressors of being worried about, say, getting infected or having a parent or family member come down with COVID-19, probably some of it will, but some of it may also be hard for people to break that habit once they've kind of fallen into it. So, yeah, we can definitely, I think, envision that For some people, they'll bounce back and others may struggle a bit more to do so over the longer term. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Just, you know, in the sense of potentially how much of the habit has formed at that point, how much might it be hard to break out? Mm -hmm. Um, When we're talking about these long-term trajectories of mental health and the effects of the pandemic, where are those different factors? You know, are they kind of going to be different by the age, the gender, the geography? On that mental scale, has the pandemic impacted different groups in different ways? 
Well, absolutely. I mean, everyone can see how the direct impacts of the pandemic have hit hardest for particular population groups, whether it's people who are low income, mm -hmm. people who are in frontline essential service jobs who by and large tend to be more likely to be racialized and to be lower income. There's a lot of women in that mix as well. Think of all the people working in um, long-term care homes as PSWs. So the mental health impacts of the pandemic, both because of the rates of infection being higher amongst some groups, but also the indirect impacts of things like economic insecurity or disruptions in services or, mm -hmm. you know, getting evicted, like all of these things. Yeah. Um, some of those really tough stressors have hit lower income folks at a, at a higher rate. So big differences there. In terms of age, certainly youth are reporting more concerns than seniors, say, or middle-aged people. That was true before the pandemic as well. We could see that in some of the data coming out of, for example, post-secondary institutions, pretty alarming rates of symptoms of anxiety and depression. So it's unclear to me whether the pandemic is making that worse or just kind of confirming that there's a lot of young people saying that they're having issues with their mental health. It's also unclear to me whether that's just that younger people are more comfortable talking about how they're mm, feeling. Mm. So I think that that's something important to keep in mind as well. That's interesting in terms of, as you said, the frame and the comfort and willing to speak about mental health. Um, yeah. However, you mentioned something in terms of post-secondary education. I really want to talk about that. This show is obviously airs out of the University of Manitoba. A recent survey at the U of M Students Union found that pursuant to what you're talking about, 60% of members were experiencing a decline in their mental well-being caused by the pandemic. This is a topic that, that you yourself have looked at. What can we say about those long-term effects of the pandemic on those students attending university, as well as those that might be young professionals just beginning their career? What are the, the unique mental health needs with that aspect of the population? Absolutely. Well, as someone who has university-age kids and also teaches at Carleton University here in Ottawa, this is something that's very a home, home issue for me. I may be biased in that regard to want to emphasize the capacity for resilience among young people, like that once things have normalized a little bit, my belief is that people will pick up and uh, rebuild the path of life that they were on before the pandemic hit. Of course, this is going to have some longer term fallout for folks. I mean, just even things like, you know, not having been able to be in class in person. Yes, maybe some longer term impacts around not having such a strong network, who knows, mm -hmm, there'll be mm -hmm. some of those sorts of things that I don't want to sugarcoat those. But I do think that younger folks have resilience on their side as well. And so I think that'll take people a long way in um, regaining some of the well being that's been lost with the pandemic. At the same time, there are some unique factors that affect people in post-secondary in particular. In some ways, some of them have been relieved a little bit by the pandemic. So going to university can be kind of risky when you go in person because there can be a lot of partying, for example. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of sexual violence in post-secondary settings. And just managing 
the course load, you know, the coursework can be quite stressful for people as they're going through their degrees. So some of those things are probably a little bit less risky right now because people can't congregate in quite the same way. But the managing the stress of being a student, I think, is very much still a tough challenge for, for people and, and doing it online, not getting out of your room to go to class and it benefit from just socializing a little bit. I think it's quite isolating for people. So I do feel for students who are faced with that reality right now. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the university setting and the supports that universities might be able to provide during this time, you know, obviously the degree of the mental health support varies from institution to institution, but do you think we're going to see changes at universities and how students' mental health is supported in that post-COVID-19 world? Well, I think that was happening before the pandemic. We were mm-hmm. seeing more and more universities stepping up and expanding the services that they had, developing new and different approaches. So my sense is the pandemic will just make that even more of a priority for universities. And I, the other thing is I'll just mention is that in the middle of the pandemic, the Mental Health Commission completed work with the Canadian Standards Association on a new post-secondary standard for mental health. And I think that also will give some focus and a boost to the efforts of universities and colleges to do more in this area and provide more supports and services for students and to take a look at what they can do differently to make the experience safer and less stressful as well. Mm -hmm. That's interesting just to hear that this was happening before the pandemic and perhaps maybe the pandemic has, you know, maybe sped up those changes occurring. I want to talk about one aspect. We brought it up in terms of the online format, you know, because this is a big thing and, and something that we've seen throughout the pandemic is that switch to an online format. And so moving it for therapy sessions and and for mental health services. And this is something that, you know, the commission was involved with back in April, where the commission launched three free online crisis training programs designed for essential workers to care for yourself, care for your team and care for others. I was wondering if you might be able to speak to that program and the online crisis training. Was it successful? Will we be seeing more online health training programs in the future? Well, absolutely. It was certainly uh, very much in demand. We couldn't offer the training quickly enough to meet the demand. Uh, a couple of times we had to you know, shut down the registration because there were so many people keen and interested in getting that training. Since then, the commission has kind of taken stock of where we go from here. Of course, online training is still pretty much what we can offer in most parts of the country. I see as we go forward, whether it's training or therapy, we're just hopefully gonna have more choice, more options, more ability to, you know, get the best of both worlds rather Mm -hmm. than, than having to choose between one and the other. I mean, certainly when you do training in person, you get the benefit of sitting across the table from people, bonding in a different way than you can when you're online, but, the convenience of being able to access training online without having to travel, it's cheaper for everybody, um, and yet still has good outcomes in terms of giving people skills and knowledge that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't experienced the training. So to me, it comes down to what I hope will be more choice 
And I think the same is true for therapy as it is for training, that if we can get, make the most of the pivot to online services that's happened so that people can have more choice going forward rather than less, that would be a win, I think. That's really interesting. Again, that aspect of having the choice to choose between the two, because what I've heard, and I'd I'd very much like your perspective on this, is kind of the, the pros and cons to the current model that we're being thrusted upon with is the online format. And an interesting piece of information I found when, when looking at the subject, again, came out of the University of Manitoba, where their student counseling services, there has been an increase in some of their group-based mental health services, but actually, in some cases, actually a decline in terms of individual one-on-one services. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be curious, you know, as someone who works in this space, why do you think this is? Like, what, what are kind of the, the negatives of online therapy and why it might not be the be-all, end-all? I mean, I do think online services can be very effective. And again, it does come down to, can we take advantage of what we're learning about what we can do online Mm -hmm. to give more choice to people? From the research I've looked at from before the pandemic, people prefer face-to-face services generally, whether whatever age or gender, most people on average prefer face-to-face counseling. Mm -hmm. However, not everybody does. And some people wouldn't go unless they could do it online, which is more convenient or might feel more private, more confidential. So I think if we can create more choice for people, that would be the ideal scenario. Of course, there's limited resources to go around as well. So we we have to keep that in mind. And currently, there's only so much in-person counseling that we can do, whether it's group or individual, depending on where you live and what kind of public health provisions are in place in, in that jurisdiction. But my hope is that as we get through some of those most strict public health measures that yeah, more choice will be possible rather than less. Mm -hmm. And that we might potentially see a move back to that, what we saw before those one-on-one therapy or training programs? Well, I think you've kind of mixed two things together, Mm -hmm. whether it's online or in person Mm -hmm. and whether it's individual or group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, I think choice in both are important. Some things are handled quite effectively in a group format and Mm -hmm. yet individual counseling can also be really important. So I would hope that as the counseling services at U Manitoba come through the pandemic, that they'll be able to offer more, more choice for students as well going forward. Dr. Bartram, this has been a very important conversation, very timely, I think, just given what's going on with the current pandemic. And, and you can't deny that what is currently happening in, in real time with all of this and how people might not necessarily be coping with it properly. We're nearing the end of the interview, but I'd really like if you'd be able to maybe talk to some of the services that the commission offers to those that perhaps the listeners should, should know about if they are kind of going through a bit of a, a tough period right now. Absolutely. Well, there's a lot of resources on the Mental Health Commission's website, even more than normal. We've been developing a whole array of tip sheets and really practical, hands-on kind of advice for Canadians during the pandemic. So I'd encourage people to go to www.mentalhealthcommission.ca and look around. I do think that there are a lot of resources there. 
The other thing I can point people to is something that the federal government runs that they just started up during the pandemic. It's called the Wellness Together Canada Portal, and it has a whole bunch of resources as well, everything from you know, online tutorials and how to manage stress and anxiety to actually getting connected with a live counselor online or by by phone with pretty quick turnaround and free. So Mm -hmm. um, that's another really important resource for listeners to take a look at. That's terrific. Yeah, just because, you know, obviously, you know, we're talking about the future, but you, you can't ignore what's kind of currently happening. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Bartram, this this is this has been a, a very great conversation. We really appreciate your time. I guess just in some closing remarks here, what advice or information could you provide Canadians who, who may be just feeling uncertain about that post-COVID-19 world and what the future might hold? Absolutely. I mean, it's been an unprecedented time to, to quote. I think the prime minister is the one who's been uh, called mm-hmm. out for mm-hmm. using that word a lot. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but it's true, right? This has been a year like no other and we're not out of the woods yet. So I think it's, it is a tough time and I think it's important to name, to name that. There's a lot of things about what's happening right now that do take a toll on our mental health and well-being. Really important to reach out for help. There's more services and supports right now than normal. So if you, you know, even if it's just reaching out to a friend, but there are also more formal mental health services available, like the one I mentioned at the Wellness Together Canada portal, but in Manitoba, I'm sure as well, and lots of information at the Mental Health Commission and other mental health organizations. So reaching out, really important, doesn't, no shame at all, like we all need to support each other through this. And then, you know, just taking some comfort in how resilient people are as a species, right? Like we've gotten through difficult times before and people do have a tremendous capacity to bounce back from adversity with time. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I just say is we need to really be mindful of how much the impacts of the pandemic are felt differently by different population groups. Those equity issues are huge. And, you know, it's, it's university students who are going to hold people's feet to the fire, or certainly be right in the front of that in the vanguard of, of raising those equity issues. And we really need young people to be doing that loudly and, and with conviction to help make sure that we don't lose sight of those issues and just go back to the way things were before. I think that's a very insightful way to kind of end off this conversation. Again, we're really grateful for your thoughts and perspective on what might be the post-COVID-19 world. Thank you again. You're welcome.
was Jay Wood with the track Some Days. Welcome back to After Immunity, a limited series that explores our questions surrounding the post-COVID-19 world. Today we are examining mental health after immunity. Dr. Bartram provided several useful perspectives in understanding where we might land in the post-pandemic world. While it is hard to know the details of what may stick, psychological trauma caused by the pandemic could potentially linger. Additionally, we see an intersection with our earlier episode on inequality and the idea that the pandemic has not affected us all equally. However, two elements stood out to me. First was Dr. Bartram's emphasis on the capacity for resiliency, particularly of young people. That is, the notion that we can bounce back from this despite the adversity and the internal and external difficulties. Currently, Millennials and Generation Z are reporting greater mental health challenges compared to older generations. Will young people bounce back from this? Second is the enhanced choice and delivery formats for mental health services. We have discussed previously how the online format has been utilized for programs and events in the local arts scene, but it seems that the same pattern exists for mental health services and therapy sessions. How might the delivery of mental health services and their respective mental health professions change in the post-COVID-19 world? To help provide us with greater perspective on some of these questions is Jonah Frolic and Lindsay Naden. Jonah and Lindsay are clinical psychologists in training working in Manitoba and Quebec, respectively. We're going to talk to them now about their first-hand experiences in providing therapy to others during the pandemic and how the pandemic may change their profession after immunity. Jonah, Lindsay, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, for having us, Ian. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. And just, just for viewers' interest, this is actually a little bit of a reunion in some ways because we, we all were <laughs> in the, we all took classes at, at uh, the University of Manitoba in psychology. So this is a nice little get together in some ways. But I guess before we begin, I just kind of like to get you guys to kind of communicate to the listeners a little bit about your role and your responsibilities in the mental health profession. What sort of mental health services do you provide to people? Yeah, that was a great introduction. Thanks. And it's (laughs) nice to see you guys. So yeah, as you mentioned, we all met during our undergrad in psychology at the U of M. So I guess before going into kind of services, that path has kind of continued for me. So I'm now a PhD student in clinical psychology, so still in school. And so in terms of the kind of services I provide, that's looked different kind of throughout my training and it's involved kind of different work in different settings. So lots of practicum, like clinical-based work. So that's providing like therapy services, individual and group therapy, assessment services, consultation, research, some not as much, but some now more recently, some advocacy work and some leadership roles. So kind of depending on the setting and and where I'm at in the program, those services have looked different. And yeah, so currently I, I am working in a private practice, which is mainly individual therapy while I finish up my dissertation research. So yeah, that's kind of what it's looked like. And how about you, Lindsay? How would you kind of characterize your your role in the the mental health uh, service profession? Very similar to Jonah. We actually did our our master's together as well after after the U of M. So again, I'm a PhD student in clinical psychology. I'm in Montreal now. And throughout my various practica, I've done pretty similar work to Jonah. I work mostly with children and adolescents 
in a psychotherapy context as well as doing assessment. And right now I'm working in a sort of community health organization, working with kids and teens under the Department of Youth Protection. Awesome. No, I think that's a really just helpful place to get a sense of the context of where you guys are in terms of your careers and the mental health profession, you know, and, and how you are going about contributing to it and how you'll you'll continue to go about contributing to it. So so this series is looking at the post-COVID-19 world, that very future-oriented lens, you could say, but you really can't talk about that until you talk about what's currently the current context of the pandemic. We are in a Zoom call right now. And you read always the headlines about how the current pandemic is exacerbating mental health outcomes for people, addictions, loneliness, anxiety, and depression. You know, as as two kind of clinicians in training, what has your, your experience been during this pandemic and in providing those mental health services? Lindsay, do you want, do you want to kick us off on this one? Sure, definitely. So the, the first thing I'll say is there's definitely seems to be a greater need for mental health services. I don't think that will come as a surprise for a lot of people. It's clear that people are, are struggling more in response to the pandemic and everything that goes along with that. So we're seeing like longer wait lists for sure. And this is not just the case professionally speaking and what I'm seeing in in my practicum work, but also just talking from like a a personal perspective, like Mm -hmm. people in people in my life anecdotally are also kind of reaching out for services more now uh, following the, the beginning of the pandemic it's pretty clear that everybody's mental health has been impacted in, in some capacity, um, Mm -hmm. some more than others and in various ways, but the way I'm kind of seeing it, I guess, or one way of looking at it is it kind of seems like this pandemic has been a catalyst for people seeking services when they maybe wouldn't have before. So it's kind of tipped people over the edge a little bit where, Mm -hmm. you know, you might've already been struggling a little bit with anxiety or depression or other, other difficulties. But then the pandemic hits, you're going to be more isolated, more lonely. There's more uncertainty under more stress. Obviously, there's information overload, not to mention the trauma associated with the pandemic. So people are losing people that they love and seeing people get sick, um, mm-hmm. going into financial crisis. So the way I've, I'm kind of looking at it is it's, it's really tipped people over the edge to the point of kind of needing services when maybe before they were better able to cope with things or potentially they were psychologically healthy prior. Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting point that you noted that, you know, maybe people were dealing with some of these issues before the pandemic and then the pandemic comes and it's now to the point where, gee, I actually should be seeking out some of these services. Jonah, would, would you agree with that sort of characterization from what you've seen? Absolutely. Like I would definitely echo everything Lindsay has said in terms of just what I've been seeing both in terms of my work and, and in different experiences clinically, but also personally and just, yeah, like describing it as almost this tipping point of when, and something we've learned about throughout our training and just in general is that like when you're already feeling kind of lower, then your capacity to take on even more is reduced. So if maybe people were sort of struggling before with some of these mental health concerns, but they were pretty manageable, but then something like a pandemic hits, like we said, it's that tipping point and you just have that reduced capacity to handle something that's extremely distressing, traumatizing, and overwhelming. Keeping with this notion of the tipping point and taking on more and and being able to handle all that, I think is an important element of this is kind of burnout. And the idea that, sure, we have work-related burnout in all professions, but I'd be curious for your take on this being in the mental health profession, because this is an interesting element, because obviously, 
you have to deal with other people's well-being. But conversely, you might be dealing with your own well-being. So, so how, how have you had to kind of balance that interesting element of dealing with your own well-being as well as trying to improve other people's well-being? Yeah, you, you definitely raise a really good point. I think it's kind of easy to forget that the people who are offering mental health services also have mental health <laughs> and can be really affected by these types of events as well. So it is difficult. I mean, we are also, as therapists in training, we're also navigating our own response to the pandemic. This is a global health crisis, and we're navigating that as human beings and as therapists who are holding space for our clients and supporting them through everything that they're dealing with. So it's a little bit like we're, we're kind of all in this together. We're all struggling with this. And I mean, obviously, what drew us to the profession is this desire to help people, or a big part of it, at least. And that's the case now more than ever. We want to be supporting our clients and our loved ones and, and helping people out as much as possible. But, you know, we're struggling with some of the same issues that our clients are with regards to the pandemic. Like, we're obviously more isolated in the work that we're doing in our personal lives as well. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of dealing with kind of the novelty of the shifts in the type of work that we've had to do. So it's kind of like the, the need or the demand on the mental health professionals is higher than ever, but our emotional thresholds are lower than ever. So it's obviously challenging. And yeah, that's a really, a really good question, Ian. Yeah, to make that balance. And as you said, you know, everyone's dealing with that tipping point, including those in the mental health profession. Jonah, is there anything you'd like to add on that front? No, and I, I, I agree. That's such an important point to make. And I think something that stood out in addition to everything Lindsay said is just with regard to that burnout, it's always something that we need to be aware of in terms of checking in with ourselves and that capacity for the type of work that we do. And we love it. And it's really, it's a privilege to do the type of work that we do, but checking in with our own sort of emotional capacity is important. And I would say that it's just become more important than ever to kind of check in on where we're at and what we need for ourselves in order to show up and work effectively with our clients. And I would say for me personally, of course, I can't speak for the profession of psychology in general or all of my kind of fellow colleagues and students. But for me personally, I've been a lot more acutely aware of when I'm feeling burnt out or what I need than before this, just because it's so much more important than ever and or always was important, but feels particularly important now, just given the context that we're working in. I was just going to add to that, that one of the things about the pandemic that's interesting is it has kind of brought us all, like, although we are more isolated, we've kind of all had to come together and unite in a different way than we're used to because we're all kind of having this shared experience. Everyone's experiencing it differently, but there is this overarching experience that we can all relate to. So I definitely relate to this notion of kind of having the pandemic be almost facilitating check-ins with myself more because I feel like my friends, my colleagues, we're all checking in with each other more because we understand how challenging it is to navigate the pandemic and navigate the work that we do within the pandemic. So yeah, I echo everything Jonah said, though. That's an interesting frame is, is the aspect that we're all kind of being a little bit more attentive to the, these mental health issues that are our own mental well-being during this time. I'd be curious to know, do you, do you think that might last after the pandemic, kind of in that post-COVID-19 world? Do you think this is a real kind of shift in the way that we're thinking about mental health and taking care of ourselves a little bit more? Do you think that that's going to happen now more in that post-COVID-19 world? I would say I would hope so. 
I think, of course, there is just, as we mentioned right at the get-go, there's been a lot of loss, a lot of devastation that's come from this. But if we think about maybe some positive changes that could come from it, that sort of like acuity of being so aware of what we need, when we need it, how we're going to get the support we need, either in a professional context or in a personal context, if that is kind of a shift that comes out of this, then I would hope that's the case. And I think something like a global crisis really just brings to the forefront, like the things that are important, the things that we need. And I would hope that coming out of this, we are paying more attention to these things and maybe giving them more weight, things like burnout or emotional capacity or seeking support when we need it that is just prioritized a little bit more, not only in society or in, in that case, because that's absolutely important, but even for ourselves um, mm-hmm. and checking in with ourselves about those things. Cause I think we've just sort of gotten accustomed to super busy lives, super fast pace. And we're almost like numbing the emotions around us by living such busy lives. And that can be okay. And that can sustain us for a certain amount of time. But then when you stop and, or something like this hits, it's really overwhelming. And if this creates a bit more space in the future to pause and check in with ourselves about where we're at and what we need, then I think that would be a good thing. And I hope is something that continues once kind of we go back to normal, whatever normal looks like. Yeah, that that one sort of takeaway about, you know, obviously we won't return to kind of the way things were entirely before, but if there is some positive elements to that, it's it's just being able to hopefully check in with us ourselves a little bit more on a regular basis. Lindsay, do you think that will be the case? Do you think we will be checking in with ourselves a little bit more, being more acutely aware of our own mental health needs? I know I will be. I kind of mirror the sentiment Jonah said, like that hope that this will continue. I think the fact that our worlds have kind of been shrunken down a lot and we are kind of forced to be with ourselves more. I mean, that's obviously really, really difficult because you're facing all of these difficult, painful emotions that might have been there already, but might have been sort of tucked away at the expense of busyness and productivity and and everything else. So yeah, I guess my hope would be that we kind of take what we've learned personally as individuals through this pandemic and our own mental well-being and what we need and who we are and kind of the lessons that we've learned and we're able to kind of carry that forward mm-hmm. with us post-COVID. I, I would say this whole conversation is reminding me Like I was in Toronto at the beginning of this, when the pandemic hit in a very four by four apartment and by about like maybe a month in, it just felt like a prison cell. And you were just more acutely aware of kind of the needs that you needed. You need to go outside. You need to get some fresh air. I now am in Winnipeg. I am surrounded by plants on a regular basis. These are sort of the the ailments, I guess you could say. So this is an interesting conversation in that regard. I do want to kind of switch directions a little bit and talk about form the online format, because right now we're having this conversation over Zoom, which feels very much in line with the pandemic experience. But you as kind of clinicians in training have had to use these technologies to kind of interact with your patients during this time. So it's like kind of Zoom versus the in-person contact. How has this format change altered how you conduct those sessions and, and the goals you have in helping address people's mental well-being? 
Something that I would say stands out before kind of going into specifics about format and, and Lindsay, let me know if this has been your experience too, but how quickly we were able to adapt. So it was probably in a matter of less than a week for sure, a matter of a few days where everything shut down and we just adjusted so quickly. And that was even taking into consideration like privacy and what are the most secure online formats. And as a profession, as and my experience, even as a student has been that shift was swift. And so kind of going in, into your question about format and, and kind of what that's looked like, I would say in general, the majority of, at least from a kind of psychotherapy perspective, but even some assessment components have shifted to virtual, obviously depending on kind of severity and need. And, and that definitely has been a shift and there's different components of it that you need to be mindful of. And, and some cases that's privacy issues, some cases that's kind of how animated you are to get that same level of connection and emotion across. But Generally speaking, I would say we've stayed kind of as true to what a normal or previously kind of in-person session would look like virtually for the sessions that have moved virtual. And I can honestly say that if I'm thinking about kind of format and structure and how that's gone, it's transitioned really well to a virtual format. And I can't speak for kind of everyone I've been working with, but the feedback that I have gotten is that it, it's working pretty well. And, and in some cases it's even better, but yeah, so that format piece, it's definitely doable and it, it's transitioned well to the to online world. That's interesting, just the speed in which you said that you're able to jump right into this new format and taking into account those privacy concerns. Lindsay, have you kind of seen the same level of, of that ability of the online format to translate into the, the therapy sessions? I would say overall, yes. There's obviously exceptions to that. Like I have some clients where the online platform just wouldn't be suitable, like children with developmental disabilities or children living in living situations that aren't really conducive to privacy, for example. So there are definitely exceptions to this. I would say overall, though, it has gone, it has gone fairly well. During the pandemic, I've done a little, a mixture actually of in-person and online. So it's interesting to kind of reflect on it because I've just, we've kind of just been thrown in. Like Jonah said, it happened very quickly. We adapted, um, we sprung into action and it's, it is what it is now, but it's cool to kind of reflect on to reflect on these pieces, like as a like a little personal anecdote, there's a client that I have been seeing for a while, and I obviously when in person we never see each other's faces. We're always wearing masks, right? Mm -hmm. So we've never ever seen each other's faces. And then I was doing a Zoom call with, with a parent recently, and I saw the client in the background, and we it kind of did a double take, and we're like, oh. That's you. That's your face. <laughs> and it was just this kind yeah. of cute, weird, interesting moment where it's like, oh, we've never seen each other's faces before. And that's such an odd thing when you think about it. But yeah, to answer your question, overall, it's been it's been good. There are exceptions to it. Mm -hmm. um, we know the research, at least with with adolescents and adults, suggests that psychotherapy outcomes are fairly similar in terms of in-person versus over video platforms, mm -hmm. not necessarily the same for over the telephone where you can't actually see each other's faces, but, uh, but yeah. That's interesting just because in some cases you, you kind of wonder what can be translated over to the online format. In regards to this, do you see this actually lasting in all of this? Do you see the online format continuing to be uh, prevalent, you know, in, in mental health services in that post-COVID-19 world? I definitely do. I think something that, and we've, we've touched on this already, but that 
ability that we had to kind of spring into action sort of just unlocked this whole potential of like, oh, this is now another great option for us. So as Lindsay was mentioning, of course, there's situations where it's just not feasible or accessible or the best option, given a number of factors for everyone. And in that case, in-person work is still going to be the preferred method. But there are just as many situations where the virtual work is really effective. And in fact, people tend to prefer it for some individuals or and so I think it going forward, I see it lasting as a very solid and feasible option that we can kind of just incorporate into our work regardless of, of where we're at with cases and hopefully even post pandemic, having this just sort of be part of the work that we offer and, and an option that we can provide just because we'll have had all of this kind of lived experience and research to back it up that this is a great option. And kind of leave it up to the individual or to the situation or to different factors to decide what the best way to go is. But I absolutely don't see virtual work going anywhere anytime soon, even post-COVID. Mm -hmm. And I'll even say like when, for example, so I'm, I'm in Winnipeg as well. And in the summer, our cases were very, very low and we had very few restrictions, but that was coming out of that first lockdown. And even at that time, I was working with individuals who wanted to stick with virtual work, even though at that time the clinic had reopened. And so I think even though, of course, that's anecdotal, that still goes to show that for some people, it's working really well. And probably they would say they would like it as an option going forward, even if it wasn't necessary. Mm -hmm. It's it's being able to provide an alternative for those individuals who, who might prefer the online format. L Lindsay, would you agree with that being the placement of online format moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. And also beyond preference, like definitely some clients prefer it. And that's awesome that we're going to like have this infrastructure and understanding of how to how to utilize this platform for them. But I'm also thinking of people who it's not just a preference. It's like what online therapy has afforded us basically is greater accessibility for a lot of populations who ordinarily would not have access to services due to physical disabilities, health constraints, even mental health conditions that are so severe and debilitating that coming into a therapy session is, is too much. Like in the case of like extreme social anxiety or agoraphobia. Mm. And yeah, I think that one of the big things that this has offered us is we now have a broader understanding and a collective understanding of how this can be utilized and how it can be beneficial. There's more and more research coming out. And as such, we can use it kind of alongside in-person services or in lieu of for people where coming in to get access to services is not accessible to them. Mm -hmm. so, so we're kind of getting to this element of how the mental health services and the, the professions associated with it might be shifting with the online format. But I'd be curious to your perspective on kind of those larger scale macro changes that, that might be at play in, in the long run in terms of what your roles and responsibilities might be as mental health service professionals. How do you see your role and responsibilities as clinical psychologists still in training changing because of the pandemic? How might that profession look in the post-COVID-19 world? I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think our roles are going to remain the same. but. I mean, as the work becomes more virtual and as we increase accessibility through that platform, 
And as there's more and more need for services, I think obviously there are going to be some some changes. And I mean, we see following major historical events, like you look at World War II, for example, you see really, really big shifts in the profession as a whole, like in the the pendulum kind of swings. Mm -hmm. So it will be really, really interesting to see how how our roles change. But kind of one thing I I wanted to mention is we're talking a lot about like therapy today. But our role as clinical psychologists in training or in the future when we are registered clinical psychologists, our roles actually do extend beyond just offering therapy and assessment services. Like we have a super rigorous research background in combination with a ton of classes um, Mm -hmm. and the clinical work we do. So we're actually kind of developing and working on this skill set to consult, to potentially supervise, to conduct good research. And because of this background and because we're kind of in new territory here a little bit, we might actually have more of a role to play moving forward in, you know, helping develop programs, consulting in terms of, you know, developing these programs and the infrastructure needed to, to do so. And then because of our rigorous research background, maybe there's going to be more of a call to action for clinical psychologists to, to kind of contribute from a research perspective. And then in terms of like consulting and program evaluations and all that. So it sounds like there might be a bit of a, an increased role for like, yeah, as you said, consulting on program delivery at, at a much larger scale. Would that be a good way to kind of characterize it? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Okay. Joanna, do you agree with this? Do you think that might be the, the way that the mental health profession might be kind of shifting, at least in your roles as clinicians in training? Absolutely. And, and I think Lindsay just describe that really well, just in terms of how extensive our training is and and the different areas of training that we get. So I would definitely see a role going forward in terms of, like you mentioned, those kind of macro policy or government or developing the infrastructure for, for example, if we're thinking that virtual work is going to become a large part of what we do, then not only providing that virtual work, because of course that's important and there's many other professions, not just mental health professionals beyond psychology, but other professions that have adapted to the virtual world. But if we think about, yeah, the the shift into more virtual work and becoming a really feasible and solid option, then not only providing that, but helping develop the infrastructure for that and conducting research and program evaluation on what is the most effective way to provide it? When should we provide it? What is it working and who does it work for? And when does it work best? And all of those things and kind of combine all of those different areas that we have training in to establish some of these programs and and shift into that type of work from from all those different mm-hmm. areas. Yeah, it sounds like it's a bit of more of an expansion like a little bit more into that area of, of organizational behavior. So so we're nearing the end of our of our discussion here, but I would really like your take on just some maybe tips or advice. It's fair to say that 2020 was was a rough year on an individual basis, us as individuals, but you also just see it in the various like meme culture, just news stories as a whole, that 2020 was just brutal. We're now kind of a few months into 2021. However, things are still remaining fairly uncertain. And that's kind of why I've gone about this series itself, is trying to unpack a little bit of that uncertainty. But as clinicians and trainings, do you have any sort of tips or advice for the listeners out there who are still kind of dealing with a lot of that uncertainty around how we think about the post-COVID-19 world? Yeah, we got some tips. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) The first one, it might sound a little little cliche, but it needs to be said for a lot of people. You need to hear this. Self-compassion is a big one. 
please be kind to yourself. If you haven't been as productive as you usually would be, if you've been irritable and taken that out on people around you, maybe you've gained weight, maybe you're feeling really tired and overwhelmed and feeling like you can't take on as many responsibilities. Maybe you've needed to back out of back out and kind of withdraw from some social relationships that aren't working right now. It's really easy to kind of get mad at yourself for all these things and hold yourself to kind of like a pre-COVID standard. But we are collectively going through something extremely difficult for a lot of reasons. And the last thing that anybody needs is to be beating themselves up for that. So go easy on yourself. We don't really have a guidebook on how to navigate a pandemic. We're figuring it out as we go and we're figuring out what works for us and what doesn't. Honor whatever emotions are coming up for you. They're all valid. And just try to treat yourself the way you'd, you know, treat a loved one who is struggling. You wouldn't berate them. You wouldn't shame them for not doing more or gaining weight or whatever it is. Just try to be nice to yourself. That's my my main one. I love that, Lindsay. I think that's so important. So I think that is that should be kind of at the top of the list. Yeah, a couple of, I guess, kind of tangible tips that, again, people may be sick of hearing, but that do work. First, people are working from home. A lot of people still are working from home, I should say. And so that can have its benefits and maybe people are comfier. But what that does is it kind of alleviates all sort of boundaries between work life and home life. And people may be finding it hard to kind of strike that work-life balance because work life is home life. So if there's any way to kind of just establish a routine, regardless of whether you're working at home, that's important, but particularly if you're working at home, just try your very best to establish those different kind of times between work life and home life. Yeah, just trying as best as you can to stick to some sort of routine. And again, that doesn't have to be some big lofty goal, like just even any small thing to create some sort of semblance of like structure, normalcy, create meaning for your time. If you're finding that days and hours and months and years are just kind of blending together, um, it's easy to fall into a slump. So just like, I'm going to do this one thing at the same time every day or whatever that looks like can be really helpful. So that's another big one. I think that's a great way to end off this interview. And as you said, you know, it might be, it might've been repeated before, but it, it doesn't make it any less invaluable. I think Jonah, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time to be able to talk about this and to kind of get a sense about where the mental health profession is, is kind of headed. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thank you so much for having us. This was great. Today, we have heard unique perspectives on how Canadians' mental health and related services will evolve in the post-pandemic world. It is certainly not all perfect. As Lindsay and Jonah noted, the pandemic seemed to tip the balance for many Canadians, exacerbating issues present before the pandemic. Nor is a lot of it set in stone. There remain many unknowns of how people's mental health will evolve in the long term. However, there are a few known silver linings. First is an increase in the accessibility and the extent of resources and services available for those seeking help. In the future, there will be more choice and flexibility in seeking out these services. This is in part due to testing out these new formats during the pandemic. Secondly is a paradigm shift around mental health. People are more willing to prioritize and talk about their own mental health. 
New polling this past month showed that more than half Canadians are now willing to discuss their issues with others, a noted increase from past years. To this, Lindsay and Jonah were right. Such a global crisis has brought to the forefront the needs that are important to us. Included in that is taking better care of ourselves. Lastly is the benefit that things are not set in stone. As Dr. Bartram noted, humans do have the resiliency to face tough situations. With a changing society with more resources and less stigma around mental health issues, we can give each other greater support in dealing with our challenges as we enter the post-COVID-19 world. This past year has not been normal. This we know. However, as we move ahead, we need to be aware of our mental health and the mental health of others. We have the individual and collective capacity to change our path. Our future is not predetermined. Thank you for listening to After Immunity. A big thanks to Dr. Bartram, Jonah Frolic, and Lindsay Nadon for coming on today's episode. Special thanks to Lindsay for helping out with the PSAs heard at the beginning and end of today's episode. Tune in next time as we continue to explore our post-COVID-19 world. Host and executive producer is myself, Ian T.D. Thompson. Associate producers are Neil Kramer and Jonah Coetzer. After Immunity is a UMFM 101.5 limited series broadcasted out of the University of Manitoba. For more information on the series, visit umfm.com. If you have any thoughts or comments on the series or anything you heard on today's episode, email us at after.immunity at umfm.com. Thanks for listening to this episode. For anyone struggling with their mental health right now, we've linked some resources in the show notes. Asking for help can be difficult, but please know that there are a lot of support services available if you're struggling right now. If you're having suicidal thoughts, there are many crisis lines you can call or text, like crisisservicescanada.ca. For province-specific COVID-19 mental health resources, the Mental Health Commission of Canada has compiled a list of resources that we've linked for you. If you're looking for strategies to help with managing your anxiety, the Anxiety Canada website has a ton of great resources that you can check out. Finally, if you're a Manitoba resident, we've included a link to the Government of Manitoba website where you can find a list of crisis and non-crisis regional contacts. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and take good care of yourselves.